Welcome to Redemption Church. You're listening to our weekly podcast. Thanks for tuning in. So when I was about 16, I completely walked away from God. What little faith I had was gone. Right? I went to a new school, made new friends, had new life experiences, and my faith was just completely gone. So I did the only thing that I knew to do. I called my youth pastor, and I told him, I said, hey, um, I'm really wrestling with my faith. I don't know if I believe anymore. And um, so I made a list of about 20 questions that I wanted to have answered. It would be really interesting if I had that list today to go back over it, uh, to see what I think and how I'd respond now 16 years later and serving as a pastor at church. I think it would be interesting. But on that list of questions, I think that they were pretty valid. Some of them were theological. Asked questions like, is Jesus the only way? Is the Bible really God's word? Do I have to go to church if I am a Christian? So some were very theological. Others more philosophical. Like, why do bad things happen to good people? Why is there so much pain and suffering in the world? What happens if someone dies and they never even hear the name of Jesus? Do any of you guys wrestle with those questions? Yeah, all of those, I think, valid questions when it comes to the existence of God. We wrestle with that. I still wrestle through them too. And and these questions, I think, are valid questions to the existence of God. So as I'm wrestling with these, I go to the youth pastor and and I say, hey, this is what I'm working through. And he looks at the paper and he looks at me and says, Byron, I don't have time for this. And um, if, if, if you don't believe in this, then you're not welcome here. And actually, you're a bad influence on the youth group, so we don't want you anymore. And I said, well, all right. So now I've got two problems, the problem of suffering and the problem of the church. And, and so from that day forward, I just kind of went and made my own thing, did my own way, until Jesus radically saved my life at the age of 19. At the age of 19, I came to faith with a, with a new perspective, with new eyes, and I started to work out these questions again, the problem of suffering and the problem within the church. And so as I looked at these problems, um, I, all I knew was this, that Jesus saved me and that God wrote a book. And so it was from that position that I sought to reconcile these two questions. And so that's what I'm going to work on in this series called Every Good Work. How in the world do we reconcile these two problems? The problem of suffering in the world and the problem with the church. And no, I am not going to go apologetics. And so we're not going to be looking at the presuppositional apologetics. I'm not going to be doing the ontological or theological arguments for the existence of God. Okay, so we're not going to ecclesiology. I'm not fixing to break down the roles and the doctrine of the church. So you guys are okay. Okay? We're going to talk about something far worse. Right? When you look around in this world, do you think something's wrong? When you look around, you watch the news, you, you read the papers, do you see something like, God, how in the world are you going to change the world? Do you think this world needs God? Do you think this world needs work? How in the world can we join God in the work that he's called us to do? Have you figured it out yet? Generosity. And as soon as I say generosity, some of you immediately thought about money. Right? So let's just talk about it. Let's get it out on the table. Okay? So holidays are coming up. We are 47 days, I believe, away from Christmas. Okay? Did anybody think about that yet? Those of you, some of you, you're planners. You've already thought out. You you made your list. You've maybe even bought a couple of gifts already. Others of you, like me, you're panicking. Okay? So so you're, you're freaking out because you haven't thought about it. Now you are, and that's all you can think about. See, in a season of the holidays that are coming up, It's a season marked by joy and generosity, but also behind the generosity, there is a panic, there is is greed, and what is meant to show us about the the times of Christ oftentimes becomes that of consumerism, and so money really drives a lot of the decisions that we make in our lives, and so some people would say, why does the church always talk about money? Why why does the church always have to talk about, about money? Immediately, you're grabbing for your wallets. You're like, where are they at? Where are they at? Pastor's not going to get none. Why can't we just talk about Jesus? Okay, sure. Let's just talk about Jesus for a sec. I love to talk about Jesus. If you've been to redemption, you know. I talk about Jesus. So let's talk about Jesus. 
15% of Jesus' sermons in the red letters, Jesus' message through the Gospels, 15% he spoke about money. Jesus talked more about money than on the heaven, hell, faith, and prayer, and all of those combined. Jesus talked more about money than anything outside of the coming kingdom of God. In the Gospel of Luke, one out of seven verses, Jesus speaks to us about how we steward our time, how we steward our resources, how we steward our treasures, and how we view money. And the reason why Jesus talked so much about money is because he knows that money is a driving factor in the decisions that we make. That how we spend or how we save really indicates how we live. And he knows that that's something that we all wrestle with. It's close to our hearts. And so he writes to us or he speaks to us in regards of our finances, our stewardship, and the way that we save and spend. And so Jesus says it like this, where your treasure is, your heart is. Okay? So where is my heart in this? My heart is for the forward progress of the gospel. My heart is for the lost, the hurting, the suffering in this world. My heart is for this city, that, that the city would flourish as the gospel flourishes. My heart is for this church, that more people would come to know, love, serve, and follow Jesus. My heart is, is for you and for your family and for your job and for your finances and for your faith. So when you listen to, to this series, I don't want you to think that Redemption and Byron just want something from me. Okay, we don't want anything from you. Right? We want something for you. See, all the world, if you don't learn from the church, you're going to learn from the world. And see, it's the world that takes. It's Jesus that gives. See, everywhere you go, they're going to be asking from you something. You go out to eat. What do they ask from you? Money. Go to the grocery store. What do they ask from you? Money. When you go to work, what do you get from them? Money. Everything's going to take from you. Here at Redemption, we want something for you. We want for you through this series to reveal the grace of God. We want for you in this series to experience the goodness of God. We want for you in this series to, to, to recognize the goodness that God has poured out upon us. And so if you got your Bibles, turn with me to first, or 2 Corinthians, rather, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. And this is where we're going to be working at over the next three weeks. And as we look at this, this is a letter written by a guy named Paul. Paul is a church-planting pastor who, maybe like some of us, was raised very religious. And as he got older, he hated the church. Anybody work with that? Yeah. His job in the first church was to persecute, kill, capture Christians. And then Jesus saved him, and then he turned him to a church-planting pastor. And so we can recognize that we have this in common with Paul. And so Paul planted several churches, two of the churches we're going to meet here in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. One was the church in Macedonia, and the other was the church in Corinth. So these are the two churches that Paul's going to be writing to us about. And in this, there's 10 principles. Okay, so over the next three weeks, we'll be working through these 10 principles. Actually, this sermon is really a one three-hour sermon that I've broken into three weeks. Or I could give it all to you today. We could go like the Pentecostals and go till tonight. What do you guys think? No? Okay, I love you too much for that. We'll do one. All right, so these 10 principles I got from a guy named John Stott. Now, John Stott is one of the greatest theologians over the last 100 years. John Stott, uh, with Billy Graham back in the 1970s, partnered together to write what is called the Luzane Covenant. And out of this covenant, he brought together all of the evangelical churches to repent of their tragic neglect of the Great Commission, especially amongst the poor and the suffering in the world. So you can see that this is very important for us as a church. This is very important for us to recognize or to, to be able to, to learn what God has best for us. And so in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, we're going to see these 10 principles. And the first principle that, that Paul writes to us is this. Generosity reveals the grace of God. This is what he says in 1. We want you to know brothers. All right, let's pause there. Brothers includes everyone. If you call the church in Corinth home, Paul's writing to you. So male, female, rich, poor, young, old, he's writing to all of us. Now, the church in Corinth was probably very similar to our church. So they're a new church, they were young, and they were not yet um, disciplined in their life. They had a lot of things they were still learning to trust God for. It sounds a lot like where we're at redemption. So they were 
urban. They probably had a great worship band. They probably had a cool website. And so we're a lot like the Corinthians in this regard. So there's a lot of things they're learning to trust God for. They're still young. They're new believers. They're new converts, or they're just kind of coming back into the faith. And Paul writes these 10 principles. So I think it's important for us to lean in, to listen, and to learn from the church of Corinth and Macedonia. And this is what he says. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God. And here when he says grace, he's speaking of the financial grace. The grace of God that has been given amongst the churches in Macedonia. Okay, here's the second church Paul plants. It's a church in Macedonia. He's using the Macedonians as an example to the church in Corinth. Now, Macedonia includes an area called Philippi. Now, we taught through the book of Philippians at the beginning of the year in a series called The Art of Joy. If you want to know a little bit more about the Philippians and the Macedonians, you can listen to that, or you can read the book of Philippians. And Paul writes of the Philippians four times in the New Testament, talking about how they are an example and a model of a church that we should aspire to be like. And four times throughout the New Testament, Paul writes to them as being this example in no other way more so than their joy and in their generosity. So as a church, we aspire to be like the Philippians, not so much like the Corinthians. So he's going to give us an example that we can learn from. And this is amazing. Listen to the Macedonians. Listen to how they responded. He says, For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, on their own accord, begging us. Right? These aren't people who gave reluctantly. They begged us earnestly for the favor to take part in the relief of the saints. This is providing for the poor, the hurting, the suffering in the world. To provide for the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God they gave to us. So they obeyed the great commandment of Jesus to love God, to love people. The Macedonians loved Jesus, and then they loved their church. Here's what's happening in this day. Here's what's happening. Is that during this time, there was a famine that happened all across the world. And the the people were suffering, the people were starving, and the people were dying. And the, the church in Macedonia was under severe affliction and extreme poverty. The church in Jerusalem, the mother church that all these churches were planted out of, was completely devastated. And now, because the church of Corinth was a little further away, they seemed to have weathered the storm quite okay. So while others are suffering, the church in Corinth probably couldn't afford the iPhone 7 upgrade. Okay, so they probably had a, um, a, a TV with 1K instead of 4. You know, it was flat instead of curved. Like their 401K might have took a hit, but they're doing all right. And so this is where the church in Corinth is compared to the rest. So Paul writes to them and says, hey, we're taking up an offering to provide for the poor, the hurting, and suffering in the world. And out of this offering, who do you think gave the most? Not the Corinthians. It was the Macedonians. And what that would look like for us today is if the Syrian refugees were to take an offering for the Haiti hurricane victims and then outgave the American church. Paul is writing to us saying, this is what's happening and this is what we need to learn from is the church of, of Macedonia and see how they respond. And what's so amazing about how they respond is that they had abundant joy and overflowing generosity. Listen to them. In their, in their situation, they had extreme poverty. Right? Some of us, not to diminish or demean what we're struggling with or the obstacles that we have, but they had extreme poverty. I doubt that any of us in this life would say we have extreme poverty. Maybe poverty, but not extreme poverty. Or afflictions. We might have afflictions, but not severe afflictions. They had severe afflictions and extreme poverty. And how did they respond? With abundant joy and overflowing generosity. Say, how in the world can someone respond with abundant joy and overflowing generosity? I mean, we live in Beaumont. Okay, it's you know, one of the saddest cities in America. I don't know if you've seen a lot of abundant joy or overflowing generosity lately, or if you even know what that looks like. But this is how they respond. So how is this possible? The only way that it's possible is if your God isn't money. The only way this is possible if it's your God is not money. See, if your God is money, your God has decreased, diminished, or died, 
and shows no sign of resurrection, then neither does your joy or your generosity. But if your God is Jesus and Jesus is alive, so is your joy and generosity. And what Paul is saying is that, that when we give, it reveals the grace of God in our lives. What Paul is doing is he is completely flipping the economic paradigm upside on its head. He's saying that the whole way we view money is wrong. That it's not God-honoring. It's not Christ-centered. It's not others-oriented. Our entire understanding of money is wrong. So there's basically three ways in which we can view money. First is what's mine is mine. Right? I've earned it. I deserved it. I can do whatever I want with it. It's my money. Whose name's on the check? Mine. That's what some would say. The second way we see it is what's yours is mine. That I'm poor, you're rich, you probably earned it dishonestly, so you need to give some to me because I deserve it. This is an this is a entitled mentality. Have any of you guys seen either of these lately? Yes. In Christ, we're presented with a third option. And this third option says this, what's mine is God's. What's mine is God's. And that God has graciously given to me so that I can distribute the goods he's given to the world around me. This is the mentality of a steward. A steward would say, God, you are the owner and I'm your money manager. That God, everything I have comes from you, so ultimately it belongs to you. And you've been gracious to me to, to give some, so that way I can steward to those who have very little. This is what a steward would say. And as Christians, we're given this option to have a steward mentality. This is why the Macedonian church could beg to get in, to beg to give, because they knew everything they had comes from God and belongs to God, that he's made a way and he's making a way through them. This is the mentality that, that we are to take as Christians to have that mentality of a steward. That when we come to Jesus, we give him everything, right? We, we give him everything because everything we have comes from him. Jesus paid it all. Jesus graciously shared with us so we can share with others. So we know where our money comes from, and so we can tell it where it is to go. When we come to Jesus, we don't say, okay, God, I, I trust you with my, with, with my soul, but not my job. When we come to Jesus, we say, okay, God, I trust you with my heart, but not my family. You say, Jesus, I trust you with my salvation, but not my savings. No, when we give Jesus our lives, we give him everything. To be a Christian means increasingly submitting all of our lives under the lordship of Jesus, and that includes the way we view our finances. And so because Jesus was gracious to us, our generosity reveals the grace of God in our lives. It says, Jesus, I know that you are alive, and so is my joy and generosity. Jesus, I know that you make a way. I know that you have provided for me, and now you're using this as an opportunity to provide for others. See, when you have the mentality of a steward, your finances move from an obstacle to an opportunity, that it reveals the grace of God in your life. The second thing he tells us is this, that generosity is a gift from God. This is what he says in the next section. He says in 6, Accordingly, we urge Titus, which is another church leader, that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge, in all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace as well. Now, what Paul is saying here is that generosity is a spiritual gift. It is an enablement that God the Holy Spirit gives to his people to complete the work of the mission. That it's a, a spiritual gift. Right? Some of you, you have this spiritual gift. Ashley and I both, we have this gift. And so it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun in our house trying to figure out how we can give. Now, see, Ashley, Ashley has always been very generous. It's one of the things that I fell in love with her for. Me, not so much. I have been gringy, uh, greedy, stingy, and I still kind of am. My, my family tells me that I can rub two pennies together and get a nickel. Um, so Ashley is naturally generous. Me, it was something that God had to give supernaturally to me. And it's something that I learned from discipline, from prayer, for maturity, but it's something that had to happen supernaturally. Whenever me and Ashley first got married, um, we went to an Astros game, and uh, we were dirt broke, we were poor, so we finally scraped enough money together to, to, to go for a weekend in Houston. So I went by you know, the ATM, pulled out you know, a couple of bucks, I had $20 in my pocket, and a homeless guy comes up to me and he says, hey, do you have any money? I said, no. Ashley looked at me, she says, you got 20 in your pocket. 
I love you, babe. Um, she busted me for lying, okay? And in that moment, I thought, what a great woman of God I have. Um, no, but, uh, but see, Ashley, she'll give. She just loves to give. She loves to give. The, uh, about a month ago, um, I got an email notification that our tithes that we had set up online didn't go through because we've got new bank cards. So me, I forgot to change the bank card over to pay for our tithes. And we're driving in the car and I said, hey, Ashley, babe, um, you know, I got a notification saying our ties didn't go through, and she started to cry. And I was like, I could blame this on the pregnancy hormones, um, but I knew that it wasn't. I knew that it was because Ashley is generous, that Ashley loves her church, that Ashley loves Jesus. It's because she's generous. So Ashley is naturally generous. Me, not so much. So God had to work this in me so that way I could learn through discipline, through maturity, and through supernatural means to learn to give. Now, Paul, in verse 7, he's referencing the spiritual gifts. He says, faith, speech, and knowledge. The same word here, act of grace, references the charismatic gifts. So what Paul is saying, is like, okay, Corinthians, you're good. Right? You have the gifts, okay? You have the gifts of knowledge. You have the gifts of speech. You have the gifts of prophecy. He's like, but don't forget the gifts of giving. Don't forget the gift of giving. And so I see this oftentimes in churches. In churches, they will elevate gifts like tongues or prophecy or words of knowledge above all of the other gifts. See, so we believe at redemption, we believe in the continuation of the gifts. Yes, we do. But we don't believe in them at the expense of others. This is the same thing that Paul was writing to the first letter when he wrote to the church in Corinth. He's saying, okay, like you have these gifts, fine, that's cool. Operate, exercise in those gifts. But if you can speak in tongues, if you can prophesy, if you can have words of knowledge, but you don't have charity or you don't have love, then it doesn't mean nothing. It doesn't mean anything if you don't operate in the gift of giving. Okay, so because the gift of giving is the fuel for the mission of God. Right now in the world, there is three billion people who have never even heard the name of Jesus. We can talk about poverty. We can talk about the stats. We can talk about the suffering. But as Christians, this number should shock us. Three billion people in this world who live and die every day without ever having a gospel presentation in their native language. Every day. Now, suppose, hypothetically, we read somewhere once or twice that God so loved the world. Hypothetically. Maybe... Jesus would have given us a command that said, go make disciples of all nations. You know, if only the last words that Jesus said was Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. How do you think God, what gift do you think God would give us to accomplish this mission? The gift of tongues? Prophecy? Words of wisdom? Words of knowledge? What gift would God give? giving. He'd give us the gift of giving, because without the gift of giving, it doesn't matter what you do if you can't get there. And so generosity fuels the mission of God. Generosity is a spiritual gift. Some of you, you have the spiritual gift. Don't let anyone make you feel like a second-class citizen in the kingdom of God. Some of you have this gift, and we need you. We need your stories. We need your heart. We need your compassion. We need your concern. We need your care. We need you to set an example for us so that way we can learn how to give. That God has given us the grace. This is where we live. This is where we're at. If you look around, you see the grace has been given to us. So if you have that gift, I need you to operate in that gift. For others of you, you're like me, right? Let's just be honest. Generosity, just not your thing, okay? So that means for people like you and I, We have to learn by making a concerted effort to be aware of the problems in the world, the plight of our city, and the needs of others. That it comes through discipline and maturity and walking out our faith in Christ. See, here's the bottom line, is that you will either use the gift for yourself or you will use the gift for others. The bottom line is you will either love money and use people or you will use money to love people. But sadly today, many people love money and use people. But see, I believe that we live in one of the greatest times 
to see the advancing in the kingdom of God. If we look around, we live in the most prosperous nation in the history of the world. We have the most advances in technology. We have the most affordable opportunities that we could see real work, gospel work done in this world. That God has given us the grace. He's given us the means. And he's given us the gift to make it available. See, ultimately, love is not what you think. Love is not what you feel. Love is what you do. Philosopher Søren Kierkegaard says, love is the works of love. God has graciously loved us, gifted us, blessed us. It's time for us to put our love to work. Generosity is God's way to change the world. The next thing he says is this. He says, generosity makes us like Jesus. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. Okay, I hear this all the time. You say, well, okay, I'm a Christian. Like, do, I, do I have to give? Like, do I have to give in order to be a Christian? What do you think? No, no. You don't have to give in order to be a Christian. In fact, you don't have to do anything to be a Christian. Like, that's what makes Christianity so awesome, is that you can't do anything to become a Christian. Does that blow your mind? You can't do anything. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it. It's called grace. Now, you, you don't have to give. You can't do anything to earn God's favor. He gives it to you freely because he's good. Okay, so some people say, well, I don't have to give, okay? I think we need to switch the question around a little bit. Maybe instead of saying, do I have to give, we should ask ourselves, do I get to give? Let me give you an illustration. My grandfather is the hardest working man I know. He is a superintendent for a pipe fabrication shop in town. Ever since I've known him, he's woke up at 4 a.m., prayed with his wife, and gone to work. He's driven 45 minutes in both directions, worked long hours, hard, laborious work. He's the hardest working man I know. When I was a kid, about six or seven, I would get the opportunity to go to work with him. So I'd get up with them, and I'd drink, you know, coffee, but mine was like this much milk, like just a little bit of coffee, and, um, and I would put on some dirty jeans and uh, dirty tea, and I'd go out to the shop, and I'd just walk around with them. Now, as I'm out there, I'm doing the work, but honestly, I'm probably just getting in the way. And so I'm working out there, I'm just kind of sweeping stuff up, picking up, you know, nuts and bolts, and I loved going to work with my grandfather, right? So we'd work all day. We'd come home, we'd sit on the couch, we'd watch TV, we'd eat dinner, and we'd do that together because I, I loved my grandfather and wanted to be like him. And no one out at the shop, they, had, they didn't have to ask. They're like, is that Chuck's kid? No, they just knew that I was working with my grandfather. Now, I didn't have to go to work with him. I got to go to work with him. The same way that I went to work with my grandfather, God's inviting you to go to work with your heavenly father. Now, that when we give... God doesn't need our money. God doesn't need our money. God's giving us the opportunity to go to work with him in the world. See, when we give, it reveals the grace. It's a gift, and it also makes us most like Jesus. And this is what he he says in verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. So Jesus is generous. God so loved the world that he gave. He gave us Jesus. Jesus, what did he do? Jesus gave us his life. Jesus gave us his death. Jesus gave us his resurrection. Jesus gave us the spirit. Jesus is very generous. So let's just think about Jesus, his life. Okay, so in heaven, Jesus is eternal, right? God in heaven, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, this is called the Trinity. They, they live together in community, perfectly satisfied within themselves. So there's God satisfied with God. And then there's angels worshiping him. And then you see that he's seated on a throne. In the, Revelation, in the book of Revelation, it gives us the picture of God. He's seated on a throne. There's, there's seas of crystal. There's streets of gold. And I don't know if you know this, but gold is expensive, okay? Now imagine if there's a planning committee happening downtown or in you know, Beaumont, and they were like, hey, let's totally repave Dallin Road because it's the holidays and that's not going to bother anybody. So let's just completely repave that, right? Yeah, doesn't affect local business, won't affect your commute or your Saturday. So 
Who's in favor of paving it with gold? If that's the case, Beaumont's doing pretty good, right? So the economy in heaven is doing okay. So Jesus in heaven leaves his place in heaven to enter into this world. Now, was he born in a palace? No, he was born in a manger. Was he born to a king? No, but adopted by a carpenter. Was he born in wealth? No, he was born to an unwed teenage girl. Jesus lived his life in poverty. Jesus lived 30 years of his life working a blue-collar job, lower middle class, with a guy that adopted him. His name was Joseph. Jesus got a job. Jesus swung a hammer. Jesus lived in a town called Nazareth, which was a very small, rural, poor town of no opulence or wealth. Jesus spent his life in poverty. And then, after he got the job, he went into ministry, and ministry, you make even less. So Jesus continually practices downward mobility in his life. And so as Jesus entered into ministry, he spent three years of his life completely poor. You need to know this, Redemption. We worship a homeless guy. Did you know that? We worship a homeless guy. And so Jesus, penniless and poor, he didn't have any money to be able to provide for the mission. So the women of the day would would give to support his ministry. Now, women at that time had no rights, completely disrespected, and they were the ones who provided for Jesus' mission. So there was a time that Jesus didn't even have money, so he sent his friends, the disciples, to go down to the, to the lake to pull a coin out of a fish's mouth. Okay, so you know times are tough. You know the struggle is real when you're digging in a fish's mouth to be able to pay your bills, right? So if holidays come around, I'm like, hey, what you doing? You're like, I'm going to the lake. I know we've officially reached tough times. So Jesus was poor. Jesus was broke. Jesus was penniless. Jesus was generous. He was still generous. He did all of that, lived the sinless life, and then generously gave us his grace. Jesus generously gave us his life. Jesus generously gave us his death. Jesus generously gave us the resurrection to give us new life. See, some people will take this verse and they'll say that, that he, was, he was rich and through his poverty, now you can be rich. Yay! right? Jesus makes me rich. They teach you that the same joys will be found in this world as the world. That's not how it works. Our riches are in his grace. Our riches aren't found in this earth. Our riches are sent forward to be with him in heaven. That in Christ, we are rich because we received everything we need. So so Jesus gave us his death. Jesus gave us his resurrection. Jesus gave us the ascension. So now he's in heaven. He generously gives us the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit generously works through us, giving us gifts so that we can give to others. Jesus will generously return to where he's made a place for us in heaven, take us up with him where he's provided a home for us. Jesus gave us the Bible. Jesus gave us the Spirit. Jesus gave us the church. Jesus is generous. Amen? And so when we give... We are like Jesus. And some people say, what does that have to do with my money? Right? What does is, what is my beliefs have to do with my money? They have everything to do with it. That how we believe reflects how we behave. And if you were to say, um, I-, I love my family. Okay? You love your family. How much do you love your family? I love them so much. I would do anything for them. Right? They are my heart. They are my treasure. They are my world. I cherish them. I say, okay, great. How much do you make? 100000 a year. How much do you give to provide for your family? Nothing. Then you don't love your family because ultimately love is the works of love. So you say, you say, it has everything to do with it because if we say we love Jesus, then we would give to the ways that Jesus gave, that we would invest in the things that Jesus invested in, that we would put our treasure where our heart is or we put our money where our mission is. When we give, it makes us most like Jesus. So because Jesus was generous to us, we have the opportunity to be generous with others. The last verse he says is this. And in this manner, I give my judgment. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but to desire to do this. So Paul, he's writing to the church of Corinth. 
okay? And, and in the church of Corinth, they, they love Jesus, but there's things they have not yet trusted him with. So they've been given much grace, but they have not stewarded the grace well. I can't help but see a comparison to the 21st century church. Paul planted this church, and then he wrote to them a year ago, and he said, hey, here's the vision, here's the mission, here's what we want to accomplish. And he, he gave them the opportunity, and they jumped on that opportunity. But as the years go by, they've become complacent. And, and so I, I think about this, and I, I don't plan this. Right? I plan my sermons out far in advance. But as I was praying and prepping through my sermon today, I, um, this week, I noticed that uh, one year ago, I stood on the stage for the first time and said that we planned on starting a new church, that our pre-launch first vision night was one year ago to the week. Hey, that's pretty cool. God's providence is pretty cool. Paul's saying, a year ago, I invited you to do the work, and one year ago, we invited you to do the work. One year ago, we stood on this stage, and me and Ashley, we prayed, we met with pastors, we met with leaders, and uh, we met with you, and we were just learning to get a heart and get a feel for our city and what exactly it is that God has, has called us to do. And, and so I, I stood on the stage, and I laid out for us as a church our core values. And what are our core values? Christ-centered, community-crafted, audaciously generous. So we talked about our core values, and then I got to share with you the, the vision of the church. Like, why does redemption exist? I say it every single week. Do you guys know it? Do you, you guys know it? to join God in the renewal of all things. And so what does that look like? What does that even look like for us? You know, what would it look like if God had his way in this world? Could you think about that? That we work for the renewal of all things. That's why we do what we do. What would it look like if God had his way in this world? War, famine, disease, oppression, suffering. What would the will of God look like in that? I want you to think, what would, what would the renewal of all things look like in this city? If God had his way, local businesses would thrive, the arts would come alive, schools would flourish, the gospel would flourish as the city flourishes. Hey, what would the renewal of all things look like in your life? Could you imagine that? Now, this is the end that we work towards. How do we do that? It seems impossible, right? How do we work to that end? It's too big for us. We will never accomplish it on our own. We will never do it. So here's what we do instead. We make disciples who make disciples. That's how we accomplish this big vision that we cannot obtain is by loving others in the way Jesus has loved us. Now, I say this all the time. I say, Jesus does not change cities. He doesn't do it. Jesus doesn't even change the world. Jesus changes people. People working through Jesus' works change the world. Jesus changes people, and then people change the world. God's inviting us to go to work with him. Jesus changes us to be the change that we want to see in this world. See, when we started this church, we didn't do it because we wanted to be cool, have a church in a bar downtown. We didn't do it to showcase our giftings, to showcase our talents, or to be different. That's not why we started this church. We started this church because there's still gospel work to be done. There's still a mission that needs to be won. There's still people in the city who do not know, love, serve, or follow Jesus. Just raise your hand with me. Do you know one person who is not connected into a local church or have faith in Christ? then we got work to be done. See, it's not time for us to become complacent. Paul's writing to the church in Corinth. You said you were gonna do this. Now let's get the work done. Let's do this. Don't become complacent. God is still working in you and through you. And by God's grace, he gives to others through us. We've still got a gospel work to be done. And now as a church, as for me, I've been, I've been praying for our church. Now, I always pray for our church. But specifically in this time, I've been praying. I said, God, what is it that you would have us to do as a church? God, God, where is it that you were leading us as a church? We're eight months old. We're fixing to come into 2017. God, what is it that you would have for us to accomplish as a church? And God keeps bringing me back to those same questions that I wrestled with when I, when I came to faith. 
the problem of suffering and the problem with the church. How can we reconcile these two problems? How can we be that church that reconciles these two problems? And as I'm praying, what I notice is that when those with too much give with those who too little, then two problems are solved. That generosity is God's way for us to change the world. And there's a, there's a question. What breaks my heart? What breaks your heart? What breaks God's heart? As I'm watching TV, watching through the news, my heart just breaks. It seems like every time you turn on the TV, someone's getting shot. There's a war that's breaking out. There's a racial divide in our nation. There is a political divide that's destroying our nation. Every time you turn on the TV, there's devastation. Something is broken. How can we be the church that brings the reconciliation? See, what breaks your heart is typically where God's calling you to action. He's not calling you to complain. He's calling us to work. So what is it that breaks your heart? I want to show you what it is that, that, that breaks God's heart. Okay, just throw those numbers up. I want to show you the poverty and the suffering that's happened in the world. Right now, today, 3 billion people live on less than $2.50 a day. 800 million people do not even have enough food to live. 3 million children die each year from malnourishment. 1.2 billion live without electricity. 40 million children are homeless. 750 million are without access to clean drinking water. Clean drinking water. What's this? Don't even have access to the basic needs to live. One billion people are illiterate, and 470,000 people have died in the Syrian civil war since it broke out. That break our hearts? And now, because I know that numbers on a screen, just numbers on a screen, what we need to know is that every name has a number. Every number has a name, and that name matters to God. And because I know numbers on a screen, just stats, right? I want to, to move us to response. I want to move us, not just raise awareness. I want to move us to where we get to be that church. And so I don't do this to manipulate you. I, I do this to motivate us, to just let us know. Show that first picture. I got three pictures. That's the boy from Aleppo. That's a little girl from Somalia. In Somalia, go back to that one. In Somalia, they're still suffering the effects from the genocide. In Somalia, they're going through an extreme famine. Kids are dying from preventable diseases. And in Somalia, females, girls, experience genital mutilation through the poverty and the suffering that's happening. The next picture is this. It's a, little, it's a little boy in Haiti. It's the only water they have to drink. So we say, God loves the whole world. We say that, right? For God so loved the whole world. He loves the Syrian refugees. He loves the Somali little girls. He, he loves... The Haitians, he loves the Macedonians, he loves the Church of Jerusalem. How do we as the church in Corinth respond? United States Christians earn $5.2 trillion a year. $5.2 trillion. And they give 2% of their income. During the Great Depression, it was 3.3%. So we're giving at almost half when we have the greatest gift, the greatest economy, than we had the lowest. We're giving it below. And out of that, 0.03% of the church gives towards world relief and evangelization. 0.03. That'd be like taking this dollar, tearing that piece off, and tossing it in. 0.03? 
15% of a congregation in a church like ours gives regularly. It's across the whole United States, 15%. So in a church of 100, 15 people pay for it. And out of that, 5% of the churchgoers tithe. So this is God's standard of giving. Yes, I preached an entire sermon without talking about the tithe. All right. 5% tithe. Now, these numbers, okay, of course, these numbers could be used to bring guilt and shame and condemnation to us as a church. But I hope you hear my heart. My heart is not for that. What my, my heart is that it would bring concern for us, that it would bring conviction to us as a church to know that God has made a way available for us to, to change the world, that God has given us the opportunity to change the world. So what would it look like, if you just dream with me, what would it look like for us, for redemption, to be the church, to be the church that makes a difference? What would it look like for us? Just, just dream with me. If we were to take that 2%, and we were to bump it up to 10, to the tithe, God's standard of giving for New Testament Christians, what would, it, what would it look like if we were to work together? Let me show you. $165 billion if the church were to tithe faithfully. That's additional billions, billion with a B. In addition to what we already have as resources of the church. We'd have an increase of $165 billion. $25 billion in five years could end world hunger and death from preventable diseases. $25 billion. $12 billion could end illiteracy in five years. $15 billion could provide clean water for all the world. $1 billion could fully fund every missionary. $100 billion would be left over for additional ministry costs. That's here stateside. So that's college ministries, completely funded, Prison ministries, funded. Orphanages, funded. Churches, funded. We could have you know, a building. We could have staff. We could continue to do the work here locally with $100 billion left over. Okay, so why is there so much pain and suffering in the world? I don't know. You tell me. It seems as if God has given us a wonderful opportunity to be the difference. See, in your hands, it may seem very little. But in is his hands, the gift is eternal. If we were to work together, what could we accomplish in this world? And so what I want us to do is in just a sec, we're going to, take communion to remember that Jesus gave to us through his death, burial, and his resurrection. So it's a remembrance that Jesus is generous. And we're going to worship or celebrate our generous God. In just a moment, we're going to receive our tithes and offerings. Now, here's what I want you to do. As we call the band forward, close us out. Here's what I want us to do. I don't want you to give any more than you normally do. Okay? I don't want to manipulate you. I don't want to do that. All right? So just give at your normal rate, you know, whatever it is that you give. In just a moment, as we receive our tithes and offerings, what I want you to do instead is I want you to go home and I want you to count your blessings. See what it is that God has blessed you with. And then work at your budget. I don't know if you guys have one of those or work on one, but we'll have one. I'll post it on the website so you can download a sample budget and you can start looking through that. I want you to take an inventory of what it is that God has been generous to you with and then I want you to consider what it would look like for you to take the step in generosity. Okay, and we're going to come back next week, and we're going to talk about God's work in the church, and, uh, and then we'll give you some of those opportunities. But today, I don't want you to do that. I don't want you to dig deep. I don't want you to start tithing if you don't, okay? I know you probably never heard a pastor say that, but because I, I want this to be a decision that you make based on the grace of God and not on the manipulation of me. Okay? The second thing I want you to think about when you give is I don't want you to think about a percentage. <laughs> Again, we could talk about that. I want you to think of two numbers when you give. Okay? First number is this, 70,000. 70,000 is the number of people in this area who today are not in church. That's why we give. That's why we give. That everyone could experience the grace of God in their life.
That's why we give. The second number is this, the three billion. The three billion people who never heard the name of Jesus. That's why we give. That's why we give. So today, maybe you came here and you're like, I had to come on the money sermon. It's your first time with us. Hey, know this. You couldn't have came on a better day because you know where our heart is. Our heart is for the hurting, for the suffering, for those who are in need. You know my heart now. My heart is for you, and my heart is for you to receive the grace of God. You couldn't have come on a better day because you get to see how Jesus lived his life, how Jesus generously gave you his life. You get to see all of that on display through the kingdom of God. You get to see why all of this is here. So you could not have picked a better day. So if that's you, then I want you to know, we don't want anything from you. Right? We don't want anything from you. All of this is for you. It's the only thing we want you to give is we pray that you would give your life to Jesus. Because he's been generous to you. He has been gracious to you. He's been kind towards you. He has been good to you. My only prayer is that you would just give your life to the Lord. And that you would join us as we join God in the renewal of all things. Redemption Church meets every Sunday morning on Crockett Street at the gig. If you would like to know more, you can find us online at www.redemptiontx.com or join us at 10.30 a.m. Sunday mornings in downtown Beaumont. Kids are always welcome too. We are Redemption, and we would love to meet you.